Part two of Worldwide Effects of Nuclear War Some Perspectives. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Allison Hester of Athens, Georgia. Worldwide Effects of Nuclear War Some Perspectives by the U.S. Arms Control and Disarmament Agency, 1975 radioactive fallout both the local and worldwide fallout hazards of nuclear explosions depend on a variety of interacting factors weapon design explosive force altitude and latitude of detonation time of year and local weather conditions all present nuclear weapons designs require the splitting of heavy elements like uranium and plutonium the energy released in this fission process is many millions of times greater, pound for pound, than the most energetic chemical reactions. The smaller nuclear weapon, in the low kiloton range, may rely solely on the energy released by the fission process, as did the first bombs which devastated Hiroshima and Nagasaki in 1945. The larger yield nuclear weapons derive a substantial part of their explosive force from fusion of heavy forms of hydrogen, deuterium, and tritium. Since there is virtually no limitation on the volume of fusion materials in a weapon, and the materials are less costly than fissionable materials, the fusion thermonuclear or hydrogen bomb brought a radical increase in the explosive power of weapons. However, the fission process is still necessary to achieve the high temperatures and pressures needed to trigger the hydrogen fusion reactions. Thus, all nuclear detonations produce radioactive fragments of heavy elements fission, with the larger bursts producing an additional radiation component from the fusion process. The nuclear fragments of heavy element fission, which are of greatest concern, are those radioactive atoms, also called radionuclides, which decay by emitting energetic electrons or gamma particles. An important characteristic here is the rate of decay. This is measured in terms of half-life, the time required for one half of the original substance to decay, which ranges from days to thousands of years for the bomb-produced radionuclides of principal interest. Another factor which is critical in determining the hazards of radionuclides is the chemistry of the atoms. This determines whether they will be taken up by the body through respiration or the food cycle and incorporated into tissue. If this occurs, the risk of biological damage from the destructive ionizing radiation is multiplied. Probably the most serious threat is cesium-137, a gamma emitter with a half-life of 30 years. It is a major source of radiation in nuclear fallout, and since it parallels potassium chemistry, it is readily taken into the blood of animals and men and may be incorporated into tissue. Other hazards are strontium-90, an electron emitter with a half-life of 28 years, and iodine-131 with a half-life of only 8 days. Strontium-90 follows calcium chemistry, so that it is readily incorporated into the bones and teeth, 
particularly of young children who have received milk from cows consuming contaminated forage iodine 131 is a similar threat to infants and children because of its concentration in the thyroid gland in addition there is plutonium 239 frequently used in nuclear explosives a bone seeker like strontium 90 it may also become lodged in the lungs where its intense local radiation can cause cancer or other damage plutonium 239 decays through emission of an alpha particle helium nucleus and has a half-life of 24,000 years to the extent that hydrogen fusion contributes to the explosive force of a weapon, two other radionuclides will be released, tritium, hydrogen-3, an electron emitter with a half-life of 12 years, and carbon-14, an electron emitter with a half-life of 5,730 years. Both are taken up through the food cycle and readily incorporated in organic matter three types of radiation damage may occur bodily damage mainly leukemia in cancers of the thyroid lung breast bone and gastrointestinal tract genetic damage birth defects and constitutional and degenerative diseases due to gonadal damage suffered by parents and development and growth damage primarily growth and mental retardation of unborn infants and young children since heavy radiation doses of about 20 rentgen or more are necessary to produce developmental defects, these effects would probably be confined to areas of heavy local fallout in the nuclear combatant nations and would not become a global problem. Part A. Local Fallout Most of the radiation hazard from nuclear bursts comes from short-lived radionuclides external to the body. These are generally confined to the locality downwind of the weapon burst point. This radiation hazard comes from radioactive fission fragments with half-lives of seconds to a few months, and from soil and other materials in the vicinity of the burst made radioactive by the intense neutron flux of the fission and fusion reactions. It has been estimated that a weapon with a fission yield of 1 million tons TNT equivalent power, 1 megaton, exploded at ground level in a 15 mile per hour wind would produce fallout in an ellipse extending hundreds of miles downwind from the burst point. At a distance of 20 to 25 miles downwind, a lethal radiation dose would be accumulated by a person who did not find shelter within 25 minutes after the time the fallout began. At a distance of 40 to 45 miles, a person would have at most three hours after the fallout began to find shelter. Considerably smaller radiation doses will make people seriously ill. Thus, the survival prospects of persons immediately downwind of the burst point would be slim unless they could be sheltered or evacuated. It has been estimated that an attack on U.S. population centers by 100 weapons of 1 megaton fission yield would kill up to 20% of the population immediately through blast, heat, ground shock, and instant radiation effects i.e. neutrons and gamma rays. 
An attack with 1,000 such weapons would destroy immediately almost half the U.S. population. These figures do not include additional deaths from fires, lack of medical attention, starvation, or the lethal fallout showering to the ground downwind of the burst points of the weapons. Most of the bomb produced radionuclides decay rapidly. Even so, beyond the blast radius of the exploding weapons, there would be areas, hot spots, the survivors could not enter because of radioactive contamination from long-lived radioactive isotopes like strontium-90 or cesium-137, which can be concentrated through the food chain and incorporated into the body. The damage caused would be internal, with the injurious effects appearing over many years. For the survivors of a nuclear war, this lingering radiation hazard could represent a grave threat for as long as one to five years after the attack. Part B. Worldwide Effects of Fallout Much of our knowledge of the production and distribution of radionuclides has been derived from the period of intensive nuclear testing in the atmosphere during the 1950s and early 1960s. It is estimated that more than 500 megatons of nuclear yield were detonated in the atmosphere between 1945 and 1971, about half of this yield being produced by a fission reaction. The peak occurred in 1961 to 62 when a total of 340 megatons were detonated in the atmosphere by the United States and Soviet Union. The limited nuclear test ban treaty of 1963 ended atmospheric testing for the United States, Britain, and the Soviet Union, but two major non-signatories France and China continued nuclear testing at the rate of about 5 megatons annually. Footnote. France now conducts its nuclear tests underground. End of footnote. A UN scientific committee has estimated that the cumulative per capita dose to the world's population up to the year 2000 as a result of atmospheric testing through 1970, which was the cutoff date of the study, will be the equivalent of two years' exposure to natural background radiation on the Earth's surface. For the bulk of the world's population, internal and external radiation doses of natural origin amount to less than one-tenth rad annually. Thus, nuclear testing to date does not appear to pose a severe radiation threat in global terms, but a nuclear war releasing 10 or 100 times the total yield of all previous weapons tests could pose a far greater worldwide threat. The biological effects of all forms of ionizing radiation have been calculated within broad ranges by the National Academy of Sciences. Based on these calculations, fallout from the 500-plus megatons of nuclear testing through 1970 will produce between 2 and 25 cases of genetic disease per million live births in the next generation. This means that between 3 and 50 persons per billion births in the post-testing generation will have genetic damage for each megaton of nuclear yield exploded. 
With similar uncertainty, it is possible to estimate that the induction of cancers would range from 75 to 300 cases per megaton for each billion people in the post-test generation. If we apply these very rough yardsticks to a large-scale nuclear war in which 10,000 megatons of nuclear force are detonated, the effects on a world population of 5 billion appear enormous. Allowing for uncertainties about the dynamics of a possible nuclear war, radiation-induced cancers and genetic damage together over 30 years are estimated to range from 1.5 to 30 million for the world population as a whole. This would mean one additional case for every 100 to 3,000 people, or about a half percent to 15 percent of the estimated peacetime cancer death rate in developed countries. As will be seen, moreover, there could be other, less well-understood effects, which would drastically increase suffering and death. Alterations of the Global Environment A nuclear war would involve such prodigious and concentrated short-term release of high-temperature energy that it is necessary to consider a variety of potential environmental effects. It is true that the energy of nuclear weapons is dwarfed by many natural phenomena. A large hurricane may have the power of a million hydrogen bombs, but the energy release of even the most severe weather is diffuse. It occurs over wide areas and the difference in temperature between the storm system and the surrounding atmosphere is relatively small. Nuclear detonations are just the opposite highly concentrated with reaction temperatures up to tens of millions of degrees Fahrenheit. Because they are so different from natural processes, it is necessary to examine their potential for altering the environment in several contexts. Part A. High Altitude Dust It has been estimated that a 10,000 megaton war with half the weapons exploding at ground level would tear up some 25 billion cubic meters of rock and soil, injecting a substantial amount of fine dust and particles into the stratosphere. This is roughly twice the volume of material blasted loose by the Indonesian volcano Krakatoa, whose explosion in 1883 was the most powerful terrestrial event ever recorded. Sunsets around the world were noticeably reddened for several years after the Krakatoa eruption, indicating that large amounts of volcanic dust had entered the stratosphere. Subsequent studies of large volcanic explosions, such as Mount Agung in Bailey in 1963, have raised the possibility that large-scale injection of dust into the stratosphere would reduce sunlight intensities and temperatures at the surface while increasing the absorption of heat in the upper atmosphere. The resultant minor changes in temperature and sunlight could affect crop production. However, no catastrophic worldwide changes have resulted from volcanic explosions, so it is doubtful that the gross injection of particulates into the stratosphere by a 10,000 megaton conflict would, by itself, lead to a major global climate change. Part B. Ozone more worrisome is the possible effect of nuclear explosions on ozone in the stratosphere. Not until the 20th century was the unique and paradoxical role of the ozone fully recognized. 
On the other hand, in concentrations greater than one part per million in the air we breathe, ozone is toxic. One major American city, Los Angeles, has established a procedure for our ozone alerts and warnings. On the other hand, ozone is a critically important feature of the stratosphere from the standpoint of maintaining life on the earth. The reason is that while oxygen and nitrogen in the upper reaches of the atmosphere can block out solar ultraviolet photons with wavelengths shorter than 2420 angstroms, ozone is the only effective shield in the atmosphere against solar ultraviolet radiation between 2500 and 3000 angstroms in wavelength. Although ozone is extremely efficient at filtering out solar ultraviolet in 2,500 to 3,000 angstroms region of the spectrum, some does get through at the higher end of the spectrum. Ultraviolet rays in the range of 2,800 to 3,200 angstroms, which cause sunburn, prematurely age human skin and produce skin cancers. As early as 1840, Arctic snow blindness was attributed to solar ultraviolet and we have since found that intense ultraviolet radiation can inhibit photosynthesis in plants, stunt plant growth, damage bacteria, fungi, higher plants, insects, and annuals, and produce genetic alterations. Despite the important role ozone plays in assuring a livable environment at the Earth's surface, the total quantity of ozone in the atmosphere is quite small, only about three parts per million. Furthermore, ozone is not a durable or static constituent of the atmosphere. It is constantly created, destroyed, and recreated by natural processes so that the amount of ozone present at any given time is a function of the equilibrium reached between the creative and destructive chemical reactions and the solar radiation reaching the upper stratosphere. The mechanism for production of ozone is the absorption by oxygen molecules of relatively short wavelength ultraviolet light. The oxygen molecule separates into two atoms of free oxygen, which immediately unite with other oxygen molecules on the surfaces of particles in the upper atmosphere. It is this union which forms ozone, or O3. The heat released by the ozone-forming process is the reason for the curious increase with altitude of the temperature of the stratosphere, the base of which is about 36,000 feet above the Earth's surface. While the natural chemical reaction produces about 4,500 tons of ozone per second in the stratosphere, this is offset by other natural chemical reactions which break down the ozone. By far, the most significant involves nitric oxide, NO, which breaks ozone, O3, into molecules. This effect was discovered only in the last few years in studies of the environmental problems which might be encountered if large fleets of supersonic transport aircraft operate routinely in the lower stratosphere. 
According to a report by Dr. Harold S. Johnston, University of California at Berkeley, prepared for the Department of Transportation's Climatic Impact Assessment Program, it now appears that the nitric oxide reaction is normally responsible for 50 to 70 percent of the destruction of ozone. In the natural environment, there is a variety of means for the production of nitric oxide and its transport into the stratosphere. Soil bacteria produce nitrous oxide, N2O, which enters the lower atmosphere and slowly diffuses into the stratosphere, where it reacts with free oxygen, O, to form two nitric oxide molecules. Another mechanism for nitric oxide production in the lower atmosphere may be lightning discharges. And while nitric oxide is quickly washed out of the lower atmosphere by rain, some of it may reach the stratosphere. Additional amounts of nitric oxide are produced directly in the stratosphere by cosmic rays from the sun and interstellar sources. It is because of this catalytic role which nitric oxide plays in the destruction of ozone that it is important to consider the effects of high-yield nuclear explosions on the ozone layer. The nuclear fireball and the air entrained within are subjected to great heat followed by relatively rapid cooling. These conditions are ideal for the production of tremendous amounts of nitric oxide from the air. It has been estimated that as much as 5,000 tons of nitric oxide is produced for each megaton of nuclear explosive power. What would be the effects of nitric oxides driven into the stratosphere by an all-out nuclear war involving the detonation of 10,000 megatons of explosive force in the northern hemisphere? According to the recent National Academy of Sciences study, the nitric oxide produced by the weapons could reduce the ozone levels in the northern hemisphere by as much as 30 to 70 percent. To begin with, a depleted ozone layer would reflect back to the Earth's surface less heat than would normally be the case, thus causing a drop in temperature, perhaps enough to produce serious effects on agriculture. Other changes, such as increased amounts of dust or different vegetation, might subsequently reverse this drop in temperature, but on the other hand, it might increase it. Probably more important, life on Earth has largely evolved within the protective ozone shield and is presently adapted rather precisely to the amount of solar ultraviolet, which does get through. To defend themselves against this low level of ultraviolet, evolved external shielding, i.e. feathers, fur, cuticle or waxes on fruit, internal shielding, i.e. melanin, pigment in human skin, flavonoids in plant tissue, avoidance strategies, i.e. plankton migration to greater depths in the daytime, shade seeking by desert iguanas, and in almost all organisms but placental mammals, elaborate mechanisms to repair photochemical damage. It is possible, however, that a major increase in solar ultraviolet might overwhelm the defenses of some, and perhaps many terrestrial life forms. Both direct and indirect damage would then occur among the bacteria, insects, plants, and other links in the ecosystems on which human well-being depends. 
This disruption, particularly if it occurred in the aftermath of a major war involving other dislocations, could pose a serious additional threat to the recovery of post-war society. The National Academy of Sciences report concludes that in 20 years, the ecological systems would have essentially recovered from the increase in ultraviolet radiation, though not necessarily from radioactivity or other damage in areas close to the war zone. However, a delayed effect of the increase in ultraviolet radiation would be an estimated 3 to 30 percent increase in skin cancer for 40 years in the northern hemisphere's mid-latitudes. End of Part 2 of Worldwide Effects of Nuclear War